I uh, downloaded uh, last week's message, saw we had Lucas Cooper down here from Toronto. Boy, did he look nice. You know, that black suit, the big black bow tie. I think they call that a skinny suit. Some people, how come, Daryl, you're not wearing a skinny suit? When they come up with a fluffy suit, then you'll see me in a big black bow tie. Jamie uh, invites me to come back from time to time. It's kind of a, a, a good cop, old cop type of, of, of thing. Because uh, uh, he invites me to come really see, uh, to frighten you just, just a little bit, but I'm not really here to frighten you. It's really um, speak to you as a, a father, speak to his children. I'll tell you, John's 41 now. He's losing his hair. But when you start seeing your own children go old, you start feeling old. But the reality is not that. You start feeling more and more like a father. And you find that you speak to this people more as a father would speak. And so that's why I'm here as Pastor Emeritus. Remember, all that means is can't believe he's still breathing, and I am. So here we are. And speak to you as a father would speak to his own children. Some of you have asked, when does the uh, president's class start up again? Last Monday of this month, January 27th, we'll go ahead and do the last half of the book of Genesis. Those final seven lectures right here at six o'clock. And if you want to join us, say, well, I didn't get, I missed the first part. Not to worry, this book of beginnings, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of the Hebrew race, we will uh, run up enough reviews so you'll know exactly where we're at when we begin the second half of the book of Genesis. It's the book of beginnings, and it's a good place to begin in your faith and understanding of the sovereignty of God. So we're all invited, love for you to come. January 26th, right here, six o'clock, we'll begin those final seven lectures. Not all that night, we'll do one lecture, and then we'll do the remaining six nights. I believe that probably some of the best counsel I ever received, even as a young man, well, simply this from Kenny Poor, Daryl. Main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. Now that works pretty well. It's a great idea if you know what the main thing actually is. So what is the main thing? As one iconic teacher would put it, anyone, anyone, anyone? I mean, how can we keep the main thing the main thing? We're not too sure what it is. Last year, we began with the best of intentions. And we made our New Year resolutions only to watch them blow away with the wind of all the distractions in our life. You know, life is so daily. And it's daily that we get distracted. Squirrel! Squirrel! that we just basically forget what is it that's in front of us that's supposed to be the main focus of our lives. So this, uh, this, this thing of focusing on the main thing and keeping the main thing the main thing, not so easy. There's a lot of stuff on my plate, a lot of stuff on your plate. But there is a promise if we really can refocus and indeed keep the main thing the main thing daily and the promise is this wouldn't you love to have some balance and some peace in your life and what I'm talking about is knowing you're doing the right thing knowing that every day you get up and in that 24 hours and, 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 and that every day you know that what you're involved in what you're giving to what you're talking about what you're involved in is always the right thing you say is that possible oh absolutely 
Because the main thing is the right thing. And that's what's going to keep balancing this whole thing. You know, after pastoring for over 45 years, I, I find myself rethinking stuff. Like this discipleship thing. And I still haven't quite figured it out. Why, why is it that some people actually come to Christ and change? And they become more like Jesus Christ. And the way we respond to people, the way they think, what they value, what they invest in. But then I have found most people who come to Christ, they don't seem to change. And this isn't a judgment. I'm concerned because it bothers you. Because you begin to wonder, is Christianity even true? I come to Christ. I hear about people's lives changing, and I'm not so sure I'm seeing my life change at all. Why, why is it that some change and some don't? Jesus left us a great commission for this great new command for a great new year. He said, now as you're going to this world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And here's the promise. Lo, I'm with you always. How long? Till the end of the, of the age. Make disciples. Jesus wants disciples. The word appears 265 times in the New Testament, primarily in the Gospels and the book of Acts. The word, the word is mathetes. Speaks of a student. Speaks of a follower. But it meant a lot more than that to Jesus. Because he defined it himself, what he was looking for when he said, I want you to be my disciple. In Matthew chapter 10, he says this in verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher. It's not disconnected from his teacher. It is enough for the disciple that he, she become as his, as her teacher. What Jesus is talking about is becoming Christ-like. Why did he even come to this earth? Why did he take human form? The Son of God, he's existed forever. But he's incarnated. He becomes a human being for 33 so years to, to show us what God is like in a body. That's why Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus, the Son, is the visible image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 Jesus, the Son, is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. Why? So we would see what it is to become like our Heavenly Father. So he sends his Son to show us exactly what it would be like in a body like we have to actually live out a life that would reflect the very, the very personality of our Heavenly Father, our Creator. I found when it comes to church... Uh, Three kinds of people are in, sitting in these pews. Some of you are the curious. Welcome. Good to have you. Oh, we're interested. We're building a cafe. We're doing all kinds of stuff. We're re-weaponizing this battleship to bring more people onto this campus because we want more curious people to come because it seems like you have to first be curious before you come uh, what we would call convinced. And so those of you who are convinced, Welcome. So glad you made up your mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. You're convinced. But I tell you, if you're curious and you're convinced, I find those dear folks don't change. And you haven't changed. The only people who change 
is this third group of believers. They're the ones that moved from being curious, from being convinced, ah, now they're committed. Now they're committed, and because they're committed, they're changing. They're changing to become more like Christ. They are becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And what it is, why, why, why are, are they changing? What makes something, someone committed? Very simple. The primacy of their faith is Christ-likeness. The whole goal of their life is to become. They eat, they breathe, they think, they pray. Their desire is to be more like Jesus Christ so that they can be more like their heavenly father. This has become the main thing. But then how does it happen? How does change, change actually happen? There's a body of research on change I've read, commonly referred to as the paradox of choice. Can you make choices that will cause you to change? The hypothesis is that if we expect to change in any way, the main element is focus, focus. Because without focusing on one thing, we focus on everything. And if you focus on everything, you always fall back. You always fall back to status quo, no change. So you'll continue to be curious and you continue to be convinced. But there will be no change because we get so distracted because we do not focus on the main thing being the main thing. So if I'm going to want to change and be more like Christ, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to change. Well, then what do I focus on? What is this main thing that I need to keep the main thing daily in my life? Well, that's the question that Jesus was asked, and believe it or not, by a lawyer. You know, lawyers sometimes ask really good questions, and this one actually did. Even though his motive was a bit off, he was trying to test Jesus, because here in Matthew 22, you have a very interesting little dialogue between Jesus and this lawyer who's trying to trap Jesus into being inconsistent or a false teacher or trying to get him in trouble in some way. And what you have here is no real surprise at first. There's a command to love God. Well, no surprise there. But the kicker is he actually tells us how. How God wants us to love him. Notice if you haven't already, you still believe in the Bible, open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Here in Matthew 22, I want to walk you through these verses. And I want you to see, first of all, the command to love. Look at what this lawyer is asking Jesus. He's saying, what's the main thing? What should the focus be? But when the Pharisee heard, Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had put the Sadducees to silence. <laughs> I like that. He had already silenced the Pharisees. Now the lawyers, the scribes, the smart ones, Sadducees, see silence, they, they gather themselves together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So the motive's not real clear here, but teacher, he says, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Let's stop right, right there. The lawyer attempting to trip Jesus up basically says, what's the most important thing God ever said? 
That's basically what he's asking when he says, what's the greatest of all the commandments? What he's asking is, Jesus, what, what is the most important thing, the creator of the universe? We know that he created everything. We know his power, his sovereignty, his wisdom. But we want to know is all the things God has said. What is the one most important thing God has ever said? Now, I would be interested in the answer to that question. And I'd be very interested to hear the answer to that question from the Son of God because he would know. And what's his answer? Most important thing God ever said. That he wants every human being that he created that bears his image to understand. God desires not only to be known, but he wants to be loved. And he expects us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. Notice there's one word there repeated three times. Even though this is no real surprise, I would expect that. Love God. Everybody says, love God. No one's going to get mad at you for saying you love God. But notice the focus here. What's the one word repeated three times? All. Love God with all your heart. Love God with all your soul. Love God with, with, with all your mind. That's pretty focused. That's pretty much daily the main thing. You know, what does that mean? How do you give it all? Does it mean I, I, I don't love anyone else? Mean I'm exclusive? I'm rude and mean and intolerant of anyone else? I just love God and that's all I love. Oh, no, 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 no. To love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your, your mind simply means this. You make up your mind, like Paul says in, in Romans 12. Now, present your body a living sacrifice once and for all. Make up your mind. Who are you going to please first? Everybody wants to be pleased. we got all kinds of people around us with all kinds of expectations. And if they, we, we don't meet those expectations, they're going to get mad at us. They'll be disappointed at us. So, so who are you going to start with? God says, you start with me. You, be, you live your life, you please me before you please anyone else. Your wife, your spouse, your friends, your children, your boss, anyone else. If you are driven that you want to please your father first, God will take care of all the other relationships. So the first focus is to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. That is, I, I, I'm going to please God first. And I'll let all the other chips fall where they fall. Love me or hate me, I'm going to love God. I'm going to please him first. Now, I can see the lawyer beginning to walk away thinking, ah, he got it right. And Jesus stops him and says, I'm not finished. You don't have a clue how to do that. He says, don't be walking away from me when I tell you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, thinking you know how to do that because you don't have a clue. And that's why Jesus continues and he calls the lawyer back and notice the command, how God desires to be loved. This he says in verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch this. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. If you just love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, you have not fulfilled the whole law of God. 
says God did not simply say one most important thing. He said two. He says, I want you to love me. And you think for a moment I trust you to define how you're going to love me? I don't think so. God's not going to leave it up to us to come up with how we're going to love God with all our hearts and souls and minds. I mean, God knew that if he left it up to us, we would define how we're going to love God in all of our own unique, self-prejudiced, intolerant ways. In other words, we're going to come up with all kinds of religions. That's how I'm going to love God. I'll start a new religion, and my religion will be the way I love God. I'll have rules, I'll have rituals, I'll have ceremonies. I'll have certain people have to believe certain things to be in my club. And the only way you can be in my club, and you have to be in my club, by the way, if you're going to love God, because this is how God is to be loved, because I determine that. So some of us, we've come up with religions, with rituals, ceremonies, some. <laughs> some of us come up and embrace violence all in the name of loving God. Last year, in the year 2014, an unknown number of Syrians, several Lebanese soldiers, at least 10 Kurds, two American journalists, one American and two British aid workers were all beheaded. Their heads were severed from their bodies by the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Now, do you know why they say they did that? It was all under the name of what? Loving God. That's how they defined the way they determined they would love God by creating violence and destruction in the lives of others. And it doesn't really surprise me that much. Because how many times have I seen others actually as an excuse of loving God, they've justified hatred for other human beings. God, you think for a moment is going to trust us to come up with how we're going to love him? He trusts us as far as he can throw us on this one. So God tells us how I'm going to have you love me. Not only will I tell you to love me, I will tell you how I will be loved. And anything else you do other than this, I don't care what you call it, how religious it might be, you are not loving me. You're loving something else, but you're not loving me. Because the way you're going to love me is not by rituals, prayers, not by violence. You're going to love me like a father is loved by his child. And a child loves their father by loving what the Father loves. You'll love me by loving the object of my affection and love. You'll love me by loving my own, my children, those I've created in my image. Your neighbor, your neighbor is whoever bears the image of God, that's every human being who cares the color, who cares the behavior, who cares the lifestyle, every human being who bears the image of God, God loves. For God so loved the... A child will love the father by loving what the father loves. The father says, I love those who I have created. They're the ones I've set my son to redeem 
to provide a way to come back to me in relationship. That's our neighbor. Now here's what I find interesting. Later on, the Apostle Paul, Rabbi Saul, when he makes reference to what Jesus says here, it's an interesting little twist he puts on it. In the book of Galatians, when you get to chapter five, Paul kind of summarizes the book and he says this, verse 14, for the whole law, now remember when Jesus said, the whole law, upon these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, upon these two commandments, the whole law will rest. Paul says, all right, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whoa, wait, 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 he forgot something. He forgot the first part. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says, you want to fulfill the whole law of God? It's like he skips loving God, moves right to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, why would he do that? Is it like the way you love God and the only way you love God is loving your neighbor as yourself? So don't even play with talking about loving God. Let's talk about loving how we love the neighbor. Because that's the only way we're going to ever express love to God. Love as God will recognize it and receive it as being loved by his own. Or he just had a senior moment and he made a mistake. And it is possible Paul just kind of oops. Matter of fact, when Paul reads this now in heaven, he goes, oh, oy vey, what did I do? I forgot the first part. Well, if Paul had a senior moment, well, so did James, the half-brother of Jesus, James gets one book to write, one book, one shot at this to make it the, in the Bible. And in chapter two, verse eight, James says, you wanna fulfill the royal law of God? He calls it the royal law. You want to not just try, you want to fulfill the royal law of God. He does the same thing. He says, then love your neighbors yourself. Like he forgets the first part of loving God. What's happening here? We've been given a great commission by Jesus. As you go into this world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I remember when I first learned that verse in seminary, we, we had to uh, uh, make an observation of the participles. Do you know what a participle is? Boy, most of us, we slept through ninth grade English, right? Boy, any of you teachers teach ninth grade English, I pray for you. We had all go back and take ninth grade English all over again. That's where you learn what a participle is. I thought participle was half of a simple. You know. A participle is basically an ing word. Whenever you have a word, you put an ing. It means it's a habit. It's something you just do. So he says, now as you go into this world, this great commission, I want you to be first participle, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You don't change. You don't become a disciple if you're ashamed of a, being a follower of Christ. So the very first thing is to make a public confession that you belong to Jesus Christ. That's what baptism's all about, whatever form you take of it. But there is what I call the lost participle. <laughs> There's another participle in that commission. The second participle, the second I-N-G word is and teaching them to observe, to obey, to do all that I've commanded you. 
Interesting. We're to teach each other to obey, observe all that Christ has commanded. Now, I've been accused of being tech-tarded. Doesn't bother me one bit. Remember when I hear about all the hacking and, you know, North Koreans and Sony and cyber attack? You know, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> because everything I email, I expect everybody to read. <laughs> but at least I've learned how to Google. And if you Google the commands of Jesus... If you Google the commands of Jesus, you will find lists and lists and lots of lists of instructions ranging from 28 verses to 648 verses. Jesus instructed us to do many things. He instructed us to pray, to fast, to forgive, to search the scriptures. But don't confuse the instructions of Jesus with his commands. Two different things. The word commands is used 83 times in the New Testament and every time it basically speaks of only one thing. Jesus didn't walk around and say, I command this, I command that, I command that. Read the Gospels. Jesus gave an example. He instructed. He taught. He hardly, he, he would never hardly ever say, and this I command. He speak of God's commands. The only time he speaks of his commanding it's always the same command. Night before he's crucified, John 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus knows in a few hours he's going to be arrested, tortured, executed. No real time for jokes. And all of a sudden he says something that the men are not used to him saying. Usually he's instructing. But he doesn't instruct that night. He says, this commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. For if you love one another as I have loved you, all men will know that you're my disciples. Later on that night in John 15, he says, you, you want to glorify God? I say, yeah, we all want to glorify God. We say that. I live to glorify God. He says, my Father is glorified when you abide in my love. As I abide in my Father's love, you abide in my love. Now what is he talking about? The next verse he says, for I've commanded you to love one another as I have loved you. There's just one command. That's why John picks up on this. John, remember, he gets off the island of Patmos, and he's now uh, uh, the bishop there over the seven churches in Asia Minor. There, there in modern-day Turkey. And, and remember, John, John was nicknamed by Jesus as the son of thunder. He and his brother James, sons of thunder. I did my master's thesis on the life of the apostle John because I like the idea he's a son of thunder, and I'd be French with a temper. That would work for me. But upon my research... The guy let me down. Because he moves from son to thunder to the disciple whom Jesus loved. He became known as the apostle of love. Remember I've told you this before, the account of Jerome. When, when John was so old, he, he, he couldn't even walk anymore. They didn't have wheelchairs. They had, basically would carry you. And they would carry him from church to church. Now people would show up because you want to hear this guy. Because this is the last living eyewitness apostle to Jesus. You're going to pay your 20 bucks to hear this guy buy that ticket. 
because now you're going to find out what kind of ice cream Jesus really liked and, and what was his preference in sandals. I mean, this Jesus, this John would know the stuff. So people would show up to hear John, to get all their questions answered. And we're told by Jerome, all John would say is, my little children, love one another. He'd repeat it three times. That's the way the Hebrews would do it for good, better, best. That's their superlatives. Love one another. Love one, an- love one another. Now, people wanted their money back. I mean, I paid 20 bucks to hear about the ice cream. And here, what, which just love, we all know that. And so they pushed John back, and they asked him, why, why is this all you will say? And John's response is, for this is the command of our Lord. And when this is done, it is sufficient. It is sufficient. I know you're thinking of a hundred different things that you're going to do this year to, to, to love God. You're going to be involved in a whole kinds of all kinds of different activities and things. And you're going to give it all because you want to show God how much you love Him. And John says, it is sufficient. That's why John writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and, and knows God. If anyone's ever going to know that you're a child of the Heavenly Father, they really do want to believe their Heavenly Father that God is a God of love. They're hoping He is. And the only shot they know to be for sure is to look at His children. They're looking at you and me. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It says, beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one, now here it is, no one has beheld God at any time. No one. Nobody has a clue what God is like. Here in your schools, in your shops, in your work, here in Scottsdale, people don't have a clue. They don't know what God is like. They sure have everybody guessing and they either guess what they think God is like or if they don't have the confidence, <laughs> they'll go ahead and trust other people's guessing because everybody's guessing because no one has beheld God any time. Nobody knows what he's like. If we love one another, God abides in us. The Spirit of God in us and his love is perfected in us. People are drawn to what they so deeply hope is true, that the creator is a creator of love. That's why John says later, he says, why do you say you, you love God and you hate your brother, the brother that you see? How can you hate the brother you see and say you love the God you've never seen? Do you see how it keeps coming back to the main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. If we're gonna change, we better focus. Focus on what? The main thing. What's the main thing? Christ gives one command, much instruction, one command, and that is that we recognize the worth of those who bear the image of God and we celebrate that worth. Because beloved, if we don't, if the children of God are not going to celebrate the image of God, even in those who've forgotten that they're created in the image of God, then my question, who else is going to? 
He's only got plan A, and plan A is us. And that's why this is the main thing. Philip Yancey has written a new book entitled Vanishing Grace. I'm halfway through it. And he makes a reference to the novelist Anne Rice. Now Anne Rice is uh, better known as the author of the Vampire Chronicles. But, but some years ago, it, it was kind of exciting because she was very outspoken about her conversion to Christ. But then I heard later she recanted. And that was kind of a bummer. I never heard why or if it was really true she recanted being a Christian. And here's the quote. Here's what she says. I quit being a Christian. I remain committed to Christ but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group of people. End of quote. Hallelujah. That's how she views Christianity, and that's how she views Christians. Where did she come up with an idea like that? Christians who are claiming to love God and came up with their own way how to do it by hating, being intolerant, being unloving, uncaring, and forgetting to keep the main thing the main thing. You see, if I'm going to be changed and become more like Christ, what can I do, O oh Lord? Daryl, be like Christ. Well, yeah, but what do I do? Do the one thing I've commanded you to do. Would you celebrate and recognize the worth of those who bear the image of God no matter where they're at, who they are? And would you represent me as my son represented me and just touch their need? Love them, respect them, care for them, show them compassion, invest in them, Show them whatever you can to cause them to be able to be drawn in health and love towards their creator. You do that, Daryl. I'll take care of the rest. You know, Peter, Peter had that wonderful fortune of betraying Christ three times, remember? And, and, but he gets a shot to, to make it right, remember? Three times. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love, do you love me? Three times. Jesus lets Peter get it back. But what's interesting, then Jesus says, you know, Peter, I know down in your soul, your greatest fear, you're gonna bail out on me again. You're gonna betray me again. Peter, not to worry. They're gonna arrest you and, and tie you and take you where you don't wanna go. They're gonna put you on a cross. It's gonna be upside down. You're gonna die in Rome. This is good news. Boy, I'd be paralyzed every day I got up. But for Peter, it was exactly what he needed to hear. He was going to be faithful from that point on. So when Peter writes 1 Peter, he doesn't know he gets to write a second book. As far as he's concerned, 1 Peter is his book. And he ends it with this when he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder, shepherd the flock, 
And then Peter only gives one thing, one thing that means to shepherd the flock. He says, now don't do it for sordid gain. Don't do it for, you know, lord it over them. Don't do it out of compulsion. Okay, okay, okay. Give me the list of how to shepherd the flock. He says, be examples to the flock. For when the sheep shepherd, chief shepherd comes, you'll be received the crown of life. Examples to the flock. You know, he just said something interesting back in chapter two. Listen to this. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter two. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that means I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. That's how I keep my, my, my excellent behavior. Do you think that's what he's talking about? Peter heard Jesus and his command. What do you think? Keep your behavior excellent. Keep the command. The main thing, the main thing. He says, because when they slander you as evildoers, like Anne Rice, they may on account of your good deeds. What do you think the good deeds are? Showing your compassion and love for other human beings. As they observe them, watch this, they will glorify God in a day of visitation. I have done some rethinking on preaching. Paul says preaching, the foolishness of preaching. You know, I, I, I just went, had a, thought I had a nodule in my throat, so I went to the doctor, and he stuck a thing down my throat, took a picture, showed me the video. You know, your throat, really scary looking. Have you ever seen the, 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 the bottom side of an octopus, and the little beak goes, eh, eh, well, those are what the vocal cords look like. Eh. I actually was frightened by my own vocal cords. And he says, well, there's not a nodule there, but there's sure a lot of wear and tear that's why I'm going a little hoarse. But it works for Kenny Rogers. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> I have spent a lot of years, a lot of wear and tear on these vocal cords, preaching, the foolishness of preaching. Some people change. Most seem not to. And I do wake up at times wondering why. But I'm convinced preaching, what I've done here this morning attempting to love you, it's not gonna change your life. I've gotten over that. But it's more like nourishment. It's like, you know, if you don't take your vitamins on a regular basis, you're going to be more vulnerable, you're gonna weaken, you're gonna have some problems, you ought to be taking those vitamins every day. So therefore, preaching gives nourishment, strengthens your soul, your spirit. It's not going to change your life. You know what changes your life? It's just like what Peter said. It's examples. John Ortberg wrote this article on, on neuroscience. Basically, it's, wouldn't it make sense that God would create our bodies, design our brains, our bodies to respond to truth? Do you know that we have, they have found in our brains, we have neurons, these little, little neurons are brain cells. And, and he says certain of those brain cells are called mirror, mirror neurons because we have a capacity not other beings don't have and that is to imitate one another. These, neuro, uh, uh, these, these mirror neurons, when we see something and we admire it, we don't have to break it down to pieces and obey a whole bunch of things. All we have to do is we just do it. They call it chunking. Isn't that a great word? Chunking. When we see a person's behavior and it's a chunk, 
and we admire it, we can imitate it, just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators, mimics, mimitates of me. I um, did a real boo-boo last night. I'd mentioned that I'm always, therefore, looking for examples that would inspire me, examples of, of men that, that, that live their lives Christ-like. And sometimes I have a hard time finding guys, so I go to those, at least sometimes actors, because at least it's scripted. And somebody told me about Blue Bloods six months ago. So Holly and I have been uh, watching recording Blue Bloods. And Tom Selleck, you know, he's the police commissioner of New York. And I, I've seen about 20 of these, and I'm going, you know, Holly, he's probably the most Christ-like man I've ever seen. His wisdom and the way he treats his family. And, and I'm going, I'm going to watch this just to try. I'm going to let Tom Selleck disciple me even though it's in character. <laughs> Last night driving home, Holly says, you know, you shouldn't make statements like that. <laughs> Why not? Jesus is listening. This is the absolute truth. So we get home last night. We recorded. We got like 51 left. <laughs> we recorded, so we, we played the next one. And there he is, the police commissioner, having a late rendezvous with his girlfriend, which wasn't so Christ-like. And Holly looked at me and said, so, <laughs> he's the most Christ-like person you've ever seen. I said, tomorrow morning I will tell the rest of the story. So I am back to uh, the drawing board. But here's what I'm saying. That's why we're talking so much about being around. Let's, here's my point. You want your life to change? Be around people that are loving. If all your friends around you are intolerant, unloving, could care less about celebrating the image of God in other human beings, drop them. They're not your friends. Maybe they're consumers. They're not your friends. You start, look, if you've got to start to look for somebody who is loving, keeping the command of Christ, those are the people you want to be around. These small groups of connections we want to put together here at Scottsdale Bible Church, we're hoping at least one of you will be somebody who's keeping the main thing, the main thing. So by that excellent behavior, the rest of the group would be able to chunk, would be able to start imitating actually seeing that they would begin to, whether they feel like it or not, they would love, they would sacrifice, they would do something that would be Christ-like. And the greatest manifestation of Christ-likeness is every moment that you love somebody other than yourself. So what is the main thing? Is to keep the main thing the main thing? If I don't focus... I'll focus on everything and keep falling back to the status quo and I'll continue to be a faithful, curious, convinced member of Scottsdale Bible Church and I'll go another year not changing. But this is gonna be the year that you become committed, a committed disciple of Christ. This is the year that you actually experience change. It is going to be, it is going to be when you daily begin to celebrate the life of loving others. And when you do that out of the command, the one command of your Lord Jesus Christ, you will see 
your world turn around. If you want a little help with this, I, I think we have back up there, I'm part of a, a group of theologians, a group of individuals that are really spending time and began a website, Agapiology Info. And uh, um, if you would like to go and have a reminder and they take this deeper, then I'll meet you there. Because the first person you'll see will be me in my yellow sweater. <laughs> and we'll take you there on a trip to keep you having the main thing, being the main thing. Because beloved, that is the main thing. Amen? Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would, even now as we begin to think about remembering you're loving us. Because Father, all of this is not because we're such a loving people. It's because we're a people that have been so loved by a Heavenly Father. A Heavenly Father who not only tells us that He wants us and commands us to love Him, but actually tells us how because He's not going to trust us to define it. So may we believe Jesus that this is the main thing, the focus. And all the things we get distracted with, Lord, all the different disciplines and activities that we go after, may every single one somehow have something to do with loving others. So Lord, now as we prepare ourselves, the very author of our loving of others is your love for us. Then Lord, we prepare our hearts for this.